Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn in God's holy and perfect and powerful and living word to the book of Colossians, to the third chapter. Another grace from God on this Sunday to open this and have his revelation recorded for us, preserved for us, with us having now an opportunity and freedom to study it and to soak in it. So, we've been out almost three days short of a month. We've been outside of Colossians. Appreciated Chris Forey opening the word for us late in March about our union with Christ and the ramifications of that that are so powerful. Then on Palm Sunday, we did Psalm 22 in preparation for Good Friday and Easter. And then we had those two services focusing on Jesus' wounds, both on the cross and then in his resurrected body and seen in heaven as well. And so now we're back in Colossians 3, ready for verses 9 through 11 today. You might note that we've already commented a number of times, particularly on verse 9, but on verses 9 and 10. But I really believe that these double or dual workings of Christ in us that come in our salvation are vitally important for us to understand and think about. I think far too many Christians don't grasp and understand this or very shallowly do, and I think it has implications for how we live the Christian life as a result. So this is one of those big ideas of walking with Christ that is condensed into a couple of short thoughts that are very, very powerful. If you can't remember what you ate on February 26th, when we last talked about verses 9 and 10 extensively, then I think I'm okay with what you spiritually were fed here back on that date, and it's still seeming kind of uh, fresh to you. And as the Apostle Peter said in his second letter, I don't mind saying these things over and over and over to you, so that when I'm gone, which is not that far in the future, and somebody else has taken my place, you will still recall the things I emphasize the most. So this is one of those in that sense. So Colossians so far, very, very quick recap, partly for the visitors here, and I just want to say if you're visiting, welcome, but you are seriously handicapped by walking into Colossians right at this point without all of the tremendous foundation that's been laid for two and a half chapters. But we'll do what we can to give you a recap here, and for those of us who have been here, hopefully it is just soaking Colossians in a little bit deeper into us. So, 1-1 through 2-15. Really through 2-5, because 6 and 7 break from that a little bit that we'll talk about. Um, But it isn't long. By verse 9 of chapter 2, Paul is back into describing the glories of Christ. So, really all the way through 15, when he talks about the culminating work of him nailing our sins to the cross and standing triumphant over all of the forces of the universe... That glorious picture of our redemption, uh, all of those things over and over, dozens upon dozens of glories of Christ about his worthiness, according to 118, to be preeminent, top, most significant and important in everything, and the necessity for him to be for our salvation, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. Then chapter 2, verse 6 has therefore, the first therefore, and the first commands, or at least the first call, the response. 
that we who have received Christ, such an incredible gift in our salvation, are to walk accordingly, live accordingly by faith in radically new ways. Your eyes can go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10 in Paul's opening prayer, that the believers in the church would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would live their lives reflecting the glory of our Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. Now, starting in verse 8 of chapter 2 then, and we're on our third line here of this outline, for the rest of chapter 2, the the latter two-thirds of it, Paul warns us, denounces wrong ways that we might try to walk which really are not of the Lord, really are not in Christ. Worldly philosophy and trying to take the ways that man explains life and its purposes and its meaning and what we're wired like and all of that, the way the world looks at it will not help us. Legalistic things and just relying on the old covenant will not. Self-made religion toward the end of the chapter, asceticism, discipline, all these rigorous things we might do that might look spiritual on the outside, the chapter closes with really have no power to change our flesh. Then we hit this pivotal paragraph at the beginning of chapter three, those opening four verses, which I would argue for you are really the reflection of everything in the letter so far and transitioning us and launching us in to the command-heavy section of the letter. But just reminders of all the things Christ has done. He's raised us. He is at the right hand of God. He is our life, and with him we're hidden in God. He's coming again and appearing, and he's going to bring us and appear with him. Therefore, as a result of that, we should seek the things above and set our minds on those things. David Garland here, a quote we looked at before, but I think very fitting reminder here. Believers live in the exalted Christ and he in them. Therefore, he calls them to live out in earthly structures. And we're going to see coming up, uh, starting in verse 18, family, earlier in that, in the church, society, government, business, all those things, all of our community structures. We're to live them out in earthly structures and relationships the life of heaven that's already been given us. Christians are not called to escape or to flee out of the world, but to be obedient to God within it, allowing the transcendent from outside of ourselves dimension where Christ reigns to set the priorities for our lives. God says here, essentially, these truths are to sustain you, encourage you, motivate you, guide you, transform you, mature you, enable you, day after day after day. Starting in verse 5, no one should try to carry that out without full dependence on the Christ that verses 1 through 4 talked about. And that brings us to our fifth section of Colossians as God now turns fully to commanding or instructing us on what we are to do with the old self what we are to do with the new self that he gives us. And we just summarize this by saying, heaven given sinners a great salvation, God now is going to call us all to a great sanctification. We noted that once verse five starts, Christ only is named seven more times in this letter. Up to this point, he's been named dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. 
Not because he isn't still significant and important. Really, we've been given in verses 1 through 4 the, the, the means, the basis for which we are to live this out. Oh man, I got a grandson crying in the front row. Tough day. See you, bud. It'll get better. <clears throat> Sorry, hard to focus. So I just will endeavor to be faithful as we walk through these commands in the coming weeks and months. But I want to also to, to, to bring the gospel to bear and to bring Christ to bear on all of it. But I also want to really encourage you, especially if it's not natural for you now, to develop what we might call the discipline of bringing Christ and what he has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his intercession now, all of that that's part of the gospel, the glorious gospel, to bear on every single command. No command should just be attempted to be lived out by us without Christ's power and without the gospel truths empowering us in that. So, Garland again, a caution worth noting. It's one thing to assent or agree to the facts that Christ gave his life for us and was raised by God. However, it's quite another thing for that truth to permeate, good word, permeate our whole lives so that it controls, good word, all that we think and do. So we're just absorbed fully in Christ and his sufficiency. Consequently, the doctrine about what God has accomplished for us in Christ must be engraved on our minds so that it continually inspires and sustains our life. With that, Let's begin to look at verses 9 through 11. Would you bow with me and let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we want to acknowledge again that every word of your word is important and that these words in verses 9 through 11 are carved and written by you, given to us for us to understand by your Spirit's help. So Holy Spirit, please grant us greater understanding of these truths than we've ever had that it would profoundly impact us. And then also, Lord, would you give us the power to obey and live out these things? And in that process, would you show your mercy and grace to us when we fail, when we fail to live out all that you intend for us to? So please keep using Colossians to purge our lives of all that is of the old self and to bring in and grow abundantly all those things of the new self for your sake and your glory we ask these things amen so let's just take verses 9 to 10 as a unit first of all and i just call this two seemingly contrasting uh works they're really if you just think of walking right leg left leg going forward forward back forward back it's that walk through the Christian life, both of things that need to be taken off that belong to our old self and the things that need to be put on that belong to the new self. Things that need to be killed, things that need to be grown. Things that need to be deleted, things that need to be developed. Or according to Peter, things that we need to die to, things that we need to live to. Or according to Paul in 1 Timothy 2, things we are to flee and things we are to pursue. All of these are two-way adornings, workings, of the gospel in us, and though our penalty has been paid for our sin by Christ, the power over sin is bro the power sin has is broken. Its persistence 
It's powerful draw. It's just consistent coming back at us means that there are many things yet that God wants to grow and develop us in. And sometimes that comes dramatically, powerfully, instantly. But most of the time, just subtly, as 2 Corinthians describes it, chapter 3, verse 18, degree by degree by degree, imperceptible to us, unnoticeable to us most of the time, but moving us ever more toward Christ. So we might just summarize this as we are both delighting in what God has done and given to us in Christ, uh, as the Hebrews was just emphasizing, resting in that. We are not earning anything toward our standing in heaven or our standing before God. That's all done by Christ, but doubling down on what God still wants to do for us, in us, and with us. So first half of that sanctification has been really verses five through nine. God starts with the details and then summarizes it in verse nine, and then he's gonna do it the other way around, summarize it in verse 10, and then give the details all the way through chapter four, verse six. But here is the call in summary to put off. So we've seen put to death, put away in verses five and eight, and now put off the old self. That self that was just consumed with you and living for you, uh, either completely oblivious to God or God was just a tacked on thing to your life because you were a religious person. That must be put away. Or using the concept of repentance, that you must keep repenting of, turning from those things. If you think of it as the whole course of your life has been turned toward God, but it still takes constant correcting and holding that course to ultimately make it toward that destination. Three scriptures speak of our old self or our flesh being crucified. So you see it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Romans 6 really describes that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's the end goal. So we might no longer be enslaved to sin. And then Paul with his own testimony, which should be the testimony of every believer, I, my old self, has been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I, the old self, who is living, but Christ lives in me, the new self, in a very powerful and profound way. And yet, this calls us to continue to keep putting off because our old self relentlessly comes back. It no longer controls us, but it certainly doesn't leave us alone. We're going to have to keep putting off sins like, verse 5, sexual immorality of all sorts, impure things, passions that are wrong, desires that are evil, coveting, showing the dissatisfaction with God, idolatry and letting certain things become gods to us. We need to keep putting off the, verses of, uh, the sins of verses 8 and 9. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. And all kinds of other sins that are not listed in this little sampler. Sin after sin after sin after sin. For tens and hundreds and thousands of days. Battling constantly as long as we are here on earth. Hauling garbage out of our the home of our heart by God's strength and enabling. 
So, and again, repeat, we must always be at the task of mortifying sin. We can't take a day off. If we deliberately permit one to escape, God will not be pleased. A particular sin may leave us alone for a little while to make us think we are rid of it, but it can come back with hellish fury if we are not on our guard. Sin perpetually stalks us, and we must be continually mortifying it. Paul Washer, the mark of a true believer is not sinless perfection, but a new repugnance of sin, for sin, a greater sensitivity to sin, a more vehement zeal to fight against sin, a humble contrition because of sin, and a willingness to confess our sin. I find 2 Corinthians 7.1 an, a helpful encapsulating. Let us keep cleansing ourselves. And the verse starts with, we've received all these promises of God in the gospel in Christ. So as a result of that, let us keep cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And then look at this intriguing wording, bringing holiness. Our holiness is already completed in our position, but this is our practical, everyday, experiential holiness to completion, moving ever more toward that ultimate glorification and sinlessness that God will give us in the end. Now we'll turn to what we might call the second half of sanctification, verse 10, beginning it. And then again, all the details are going to unfold all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. But the call to, in addition to put off the old self, to put on the new self. Ephesians 4, in a very similar passage there where Paul is talking about some of this same uh, working of the Lord, it says that the new self is created after the likeness of God. We'll see the image of the creator here in Colossians, in true righteousness and whole holiness. In other words, Christ doesn't just rebuild us, refurbish us, make some minor improvements, renovations, little remodeling. He gives us a whole new person, an entirely new self, that is much more like his, equipped to be, empowered to be. We have the same body. Generally, we're in the same circumstances when we come to know him and he comes in to give us a new self. And it's not perfect yet, but it is growing. It is renewing, as we'll see. And it gives us a completely new and different master, a completely new and different set of desires, of sensitivities, a completely new identity and purpose in life, a completely new way to live, to think, to talk, to view sin, to react to it. And as we'll see in the coming verses, this is another of those little hints of how we relate to people. J.C. Ryle basically says some of these same things. To be born again is to enter into a new existence, to have a new mind, a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likes, New dislikes, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God, ourselves, the world, the life to come, and salvation. God is saying you're trading rags of the old self for riches, the robes of Christ's righteous new self. Your old self was you doing life without God largely on your own. And you now need Christ to help you keep dragging out every remnant of that old self out of you. And your new self, Christ in you, enables you to become like him. And you need Christ forming 
the glorious pieces of his self, his nature within you. There's even a couple of places in Scripture that go so far, both written by Paul, that go so far as to say that we put on Christ. So you'll see it in Galatians 3.27. As many of us who were baptized into Christ, that's a spiritual baptism that Colossians 2.12 also talks about, that dying to the old and being raised new. But those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then Romans 13, 12 calls us to keep continuously, continually putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, especially those of you, whether you're young or have been around the church and perhaps even this church for a long time, that focus primarily on the external evidences of faith or of religion or of the modifying of your behavior has this interior transformation taken place in you you can tell if it has we can also be deceived about it but it is a powerful transformation second corinthians 13 5 says examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith test yourselves do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? That is a profound experience unless you fail to meet the test. Is it possible that you might be imitating on an external mask-like performance what actually is not happening internally inside of you because of Christ? You might word it as, is Jesus a concept a truth, a story, someone or something that's out there that you look at and have some faith in, but you're essentially unchanged by that? Or is Jesus a living being, a person, inside of you and you in him, who is influencing you heavily? Is your Christian life mostly a flat line? Or is it a clear evidence that Christ is doing dynamic growth in you? Always, we want you to know it's our heart's desires as we lean on you on some of these things, whether it's me or others who fill the pulpit here. And we long for no one who's been here, who's heard this gospel who knows it inside out, who can give all the right answers on a piece of paper to end up in hell because Christ isn't actually in them. So examine yourselves. Consider that. And I think we'll, you'll see, even as we continue walking through this, that you, when you come to Christ in faith and repentance, and he, you are born again, and he comes to live in you, and you come to live in him, that it is, you are not the same person and you do not remain basically the same person. It is a profound impact. Now, that new self is described in the rest of verse 10 in three ways that I think are important. First of all, that it's being renewed. Here's the basic idea. It's not a stagnant new, life, new you that's given to you that's at its peak. And then the rest of its life, it's draining out. Kind of like the second half of our 
aging lives uh, tends to be. It's alive, it's ongoing, it's fluid, it's being renewed. It's alive, continually being generated by God. Um, Ephesians 4.23 talks about renewing our minds, which is very similar here to being renewed in knowledge. Romans 12.2 as well. It's like a spring-fed stream that just keeps bringing new water into the life of the stream. The human body can't give us a full analogy of this because even though we're born fully human in a physical way and we grow and mature, there comes a point in our life where we cap, we peak, and then we start declining. And the older you get, the more you see and realize that. Um, you young ones think you're going to live forever and your body's going to go on immortally and you're going to be disappointed. It's not like that in that sense. It is ongoing, perpetual, endless renewal. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Our outer self is wasting away. It's going to end up in the grave. Our inner self, the one that's new with Christ in it, is being renewed day by day, perpetually, forever. I've had a new self for about 51 years of my 63 years. 19,000 days. Christ has renewed it and renewed it and renewed it and renewed it. And renewed it. It's what he does, and it's what's essential for our new self and our new life. The new self is a renewing self, and it's renewed by the living person of Christ. Going on in verse 10, we're renewed in knowledge. Significant thing to note that life comes to us through our knowing, particularly of God and his word. Now, I'm going to just remind you quickly, you can see them in red, that already in Colossians, knowledge has been emphasized. It was in Paul's prayer at the beginning that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual understanding. And that knowledge would lead to us walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then in chapter 2, Paul circled back to how important it is. said, I'm longing for you as a church body to be knit together in love which is what verse 11 in Colossians 3 is going to emphasize. And to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge, and then this is where he really says, this mystery is Christ himself brought to us now in the new covenant and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So John Flavel, one of the Puritans, reminds us that studying Jesus, getting to know Jesus, Growing in the knowledge of Christ particularly is the most notable subject that ever a soul spent itself on. Sam Storms here reminds us the importance of knowledge. Ignorance is the mortal enemy of sanctification and a Christ-like life. There is certainly more to the Christian life than knowledge, absolutely more. But there is no Christian life without it. Knowledge may not be sufficient in itself, but it is absolutely necessary. And apart from it all, other expressions of alleged conformity to Christ ring hollow and useless. 
So the single ultimate source of our knowing God is the Bible, the Word, even as we just uh, read in Hebrews 4 this morning that the Word is living and active. It's a living Word that comes in, renews us internally in the new self, and generates that ongoing life, piercing and working its way into all of the crevices of our hearts. And that all is, comes to us through the Holy Spirit, who indwells, who grants us that understanding. And then as we'll see in the coming verses, the church also plays an instrumental role in that. Reading, studying, meditating on, feeding on the words of God. Or as Colossians 3.16, we're going to get there eventually. I've probably said this to you, quoted this first part of it to you 25 times. Let the word of Christ dwell, live, reside, make residence, never leave, be there working in you so that it is transforming you. And then the last part of verse 10 back in Colossians 3 is that the knowledge is ultimately after or in the likeness of the image of its creator. So <clears throat> whether you think of God the Father, Christ in his work, but their nature, that they are working in us to renew us to degree by degree by degree, as 2 Corinthians 3 puts it, to be made to be transformed into the same image of the Son of God that we behold in all his glory. Romans 8.29 emphasizes that. I love the way Paul puts it in Galatians 4.19. It says, I am, in, I am in labor like childbirth until Christ is formed in you, until his, his nature and his likeness is manifesting itself ever more powerfully. Storms again. God's aim in us and our aim through him is to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to feel and act and speak like Jesus. This is the essence of the Christian, of Christian living. And that brings us to verse 11. Strikes me, English teacher, trying to figure out how thoughts connect together, as seemingly a little out of place here. Why suddenly do we move to talking about Gentiles and Jews and some of these things uh, in light of everything that's been so personal. But I think what it's telling us is one of the most notable characteristics of a new self being renewed is here, as verse 11 starts, which I think not only is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his beloved son, remember back in chapter 1, verse 15, he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But even more specifically, in the church, where Christ is the head, go back to chapter 1, verse 17. So here in the body, and you can also just think of in the new self. That becoming like Christ, being made in the image of Christ, that renewing process is not just each of us as silos, individually, personally, becoming more like Christ, but by a work of the new selves within a community of believers, within the church, where God starts renewing within our relationships. So one of the clearest evidences of Christ's presence and one of the strongest workings of Christ in his people 
is manifested in how everyone relates to each other with their new selves. I saw a sarcastic meme this week alleging a 109-year-old woman saying that the secret to a long life is avoiding people. And there's humor in that, and there's truth in that. (laughs) But it makes the point that apart from Christ or without God, people live very fragmented lives, very dysfunctional, very broken in relationships. Pride, conflict, discrimination, suspicion, pain, anger. We can list dozens upon dozens upon dozens of relationship struggles. Even when we're side by side with people or when people are side by side with each other, they either have nothing to do with each other or little that connects them. And even when there are connections made, often they are temporary, easily broken, often never repaired, and people just move on. But that's not God's intention when he gives us the new self. That's the old self. The new self and people given the new self with Christ in them are knit together in love, which is what 2-5, or I'm sorry, 2-2, Colossians 2-2 describes. Or if you want to look at the end of verse uh, 13, 14, that we all live in harmony with one another. So again, as we said back in verse 8, and I think verse 11, personally I think verse 11, flows out of verse 8. I said in verse 8 that these are sins that are harmful attitudes and ways that we do relationships with people that are toxic, harmful, dysfunctional, dishonoring to God, that he wants to radically exterminate and change the way we look at everyone change the way we think about them, change the way we talk to them, and change the way we talk about them. So I think that's what verse 11 is picking up after the brief interlude of put off old old and put on new. God is describing here that the remarkably new and different new self profoundly shapes a church body and its relationships to each other. Now, he's going to detail some common differences. In the early church, when Paul was writing, it was a big deal between Greeks or Gentiles or non-Jews and Jews. And though God's favor in the old covenant clearly rested on the Jews, God is saying here that there is no racial or ethnic distinguishments that are be focused on here. And if you know Ephesians 2, The second half of Ephesians 2, very long section, deals with how Christ is our peace and has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, particularly between Greeks and Jews. Let me just segue out of that to an illustration that applies to this church. This church was developed ethnically by Germans who lived in Russia, who immigrated here. And this whole South Bottoms community was Germans from Russia. And so you felt out of place. In fact, my early days here, some of them, whenever they didn't want me to know what they were talking about, they would talk in German to each other. 
but there, there was, thank you, Mark, there was very much a sense that there was a people group here that it was hard to break into. But after World War II, that all flipped. The Germans became the ones hated by everybody else. They became the objects of racial persecution here in Lincoln. They have stories of hiding when, when groups went by. When, and God's point here is, when things are built upon racial or ethnic or nationalism or any of those things, they are going to divide and separate where God wants no division or separation. We'll go on. Next in the list is circumcised and uncircumcised. Not a huge deal for most of us anymore. It's not a, a mark of the covenant, but it was a way that they, again, separated. And God's point is, I want you to see no difference. And Galatians is written largely to address that issue and others like it. Then we get to a little more vague one, barbarian and Scythian. We're not sure, like you can read, and there's all kinds of historical things that says they were this way and they were this way and lots of history behind it. Uh, guys like Jeff Fox will probably get into studying that. But it seems that it's built around social class or uh, civilized versus less civilized or rougher people. They were notably different. And then one that we can't fully relate to because slaves in the New Testament times were not exactly the same as the slaves we have known in our own history. But it was ways that the society and the culture saw people very, very different. Slave, bottom. Free, top. And God is saying here again, I want you to have, that should have zero effect in the body of Christ. Slaves and masters have the exact same standing before God, and we will see that addressed later in Colossians 3 in the first verse of Colossians 4. And we can add all kinds of other distinguishing features to these eight or so. Differences between young and old, male-female, which is what Galatians 3.28 or 27 adds as well. Differences between single and married, differences in our political leaning, Differences in our IQ, in our job status, etc. We can just go on and on. We tend toward one group of people or another. We tend toward people who are like us. We tend away from people who are not like us. And God's point here is nobody is to be looked down on or seen as lesser. And nobody is to be elevated or seen as more important. In Christ, if Christ is in all of us, there is no favoritism, no prejudice, no judging, no differentiating. So to notice and allow the differences, the unique ways God has put each of us in our lives, to allow that to color the way we look at each other is to magnify our humanness and diminish our Christ-likeness. If we look at somebody and see a difference in them rather than similarity of Christ... We are headed in the wrong direction of how God wants us to look. Is there any way in which you mentally categorize people in the body of Christ? God here is saying there's no room for that. Galatians 3, Paul unpacks it this way. Three different angles. 
In Christ, you're all sons of God, or all of the family of God, equally. There aren't favorites that are adopted by God and then lesser ones and then, well, nobody else would take them, so we'll take them. All equally in status before God in Christ. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All of you are wearing Christ. So, he goes on. No Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Garland with two short statements. The gospel shatters an us versus them mentality, and those who are joined to Christ are also joined to one another. Do you, brothers and sisters, view everyone just practically in this body equally in Christ Jesus? And I think that's what the closing thought of verse 11 is really highlighting and emphasizing. What is to dominate in the church body is that Christ is all. In other words, all the other things that are differences really don't matter. They really dissipate away because Christ is our all-consuming, unifying uh, Lord. And all are equally in Christ. Christ is the great equalizer of people. No one is higher no one is lower. No one is inferior. No one is superior. Though we may have little else in common with each other, our shared sharing of Christ unifies us tremendously. And I will just note, because I get into these trivias, this is the first mention of Christ in verse 11 since verse 4. So we've had all these commands, all these calls, but he comes back, and here really is a great summary of everything. It's really emphasizing that Christ is to be preeminent in all. It's another way of saying that, to say what matters above everything else, what is the dominating factor is Christ and the fact that he is all. So I don't have a new and different conclusion, and I'm not doing this because I run out of time each Saturday. This still is my heart for us. I'll come back again. This is probably our fourth Sunday of this. Don't underestimate how important your sanctification is to Christ. Both halves of it, meaning that which we are to be putting off of the old self and that which we are to be putting on of the new self. And then the calls of Scripture that we are not just to be passive about this. Like we're not just to say, Whew, I got in the door of the kingdom of heaven. I don't matter. I don't care much what happens from this point as long as I'm not going to hell. That's not God's emphasis. It's a glorious gift that he gives us in our faith in him. But then he says, make every effort. Your salvation's been cared for. Now make every effort. Pursue, press on, run, discipline your body so that Christ is formed ever more fully in you. And then don't underestimate how important the gospel is, the person of Christ and the work of Christ to your sanctification. It provides a power unlike anything that we can find anywhere else. And then just reminders again, these all are heart postures that I want to just encourage you toward. Keep seeking to increasingly experience the pleasures of God that are unlike anything here on earth. 
Keep seeking to increase your understanding of how great and realizing the love of Christ is for you. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is so powerful on that line that we need God's help to even grasp and understand it. And keep seeking to increase and behold the glory of Christ. For that is what transforms. Here's a John Owen quote I've shared with you a couple of times. I'll bring you back to again. Let us live in the constant, good word, constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. And virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, get the renewal there, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. That's really a capturing of Colossians 3, 1 through 11. When the mind is filled with the thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul cleaves to him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance to those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls in this as a constant view of Christ and his glory. And then a word picture that's really from John Flavel, but Greg Morris used it and has, so I'm going to go Greg Morris, then John Flavel in the middle with a different color, and then Greg Morris again. All bits from an article. Let us spend our lives, Morris says, beholding his manifold glories. Let's plunder the riches of Christ. We all have more of him to see. And Flavel gives this word picture in the studying of Christ as in the planting of a new discovered country. At first men sit down by the seaside upon the skirts and borders of the land, and there they dwell. But by degrees they search farther and farther into the heart of the country. Ah, the best of us are yet but upon the borders of this vast continent of Christ. So Morris finishes, travel onward, dear Christian, in the knowledge of him. Do not settle for his ethic, his marriage counseling, his worldview, and, and is just giving examples of ways we stop short. I just want this from Jesus rather than I want Christ and I want all of him. So let's go explore Christ. Let's keep pressing that as a body on Sunday mornings, but you the other six days of the week as well. There are so many wretches yet for us to treasure and to find. I just got a new book yesterday about Christ that I can't wait to dig into to learn more about him. Oh, may God help all of us to see more of him. Please join me again in our closing expression of worship from Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen.